as I've said uh, to folks many times, there are some things that cannot be seen with moral clarity except through tears. And until we collectively weep over the demonic evil that has been perpetrated upon the African-American community, past and present, unless we're weeping with repentance, with lament and with sorrow, we'll never be able to ask these questions rightly. And unless we're weeping, we'll never actually be centering the right people. Mm. I wonder if you've ever thought much about tears. Most people don't like to think about tears. We don't like to experience tears. But tears are this amazing capacity that God has made our bodies with. Tears communicate. They can tell the world about joy. They can speak about our sorrow. Tears can even reveal a sense of wonder. But tears also help us see. And I know that seems counterintuitive because usually when our eyes are full of tears, it blurs our vision. But in this episode of the podcast, as we continue talking with the Reverend Duke Kwan, he points out that actually some things can only be seen through tears. The kind of moral clarity that fixes and repairs deep, painful histories and wrongs. Well, we we will only get that kind of moral clarity through tears. The more painful our lives and our histories, the more weeping ought to be in our lives, the more tears ought to be in our eyes. So join us as we talk about how seeing through tears can lead us to moral clarity and why that moral clarity is so very important in our day and age. Duke, brother, in our last conversation, man, we were starting to get in it a little yeah, bit. Yeah, yeah, And uh, we were thinking about this issue of who gets centered in our ministries and, and when. For us, we've had to sort of think about that explicitly. Right. Right. Because we are we are a predominantly African-American congregation, probably 65% African-American. Yeah. In a predominantly African-American community, 92% uh, African-American community. And we, we feel a missional desire to represent our community, to advocate, to lobby uh, for our community, needs of our community. And we feel a pastoral responsibility to shepherd everybody who's here. Uh, and it's not always easy to get your arms around everybody collectively. And sometimes the ways in which we try to corral the whole church, we can sort of slip over into centering some things that shouldn't be at the center at that moment right. or, you know, um, fronting some concerns that shouldn't be at the center in that moment. And so that shows up, it seems to me, and you correct me if I'm wrong, the more you get into applied and particular areas of righteousness, justice, mercy, et cetera, it feels like the more opportunity you have to, to center particular concerns or persons and to, in that way, maybe feel to some people sort of put on the periphery or to marginalize others. I'm wondering if that tracks with your experience. I'm wondering how you how you deal with that, particularly on an issue. Maybe we can talk about two issues uh, here, particularly on an issue like reparations, mm-hmm. which you and, and our brother Greg have, have written so powerfully and clearly and, and winsomely about, and an issue like 
the flourishing of women and the roles of women in, in our congregations. And so maybe we can take those in turn and talk about how you approach those kinds of issues. Because if, if you're trying to minister in the kinds of neighborhoods that we aim at with the Creek Collective, vulnerable, neglected, marginalized, uh, black and brown neighborhoods, you're just going to often be into concerns that that neighborhood has right. that aren't necessarily the concerns of the wider society. That's right. So how to center the neighborhood and its concerns in a fruitful way. Yeah, no, I think that's right. I mean, you know, even on the, the topic of reparations, to start with that one, the whole enterprise of reparations itself is defined by the commitment to center the concerns of African-Americans historically and presently. Mm. So I I actually think that's one reason why it tends to be so controversial without people spelling it out consciously necessarily, but it's because reparations is such a Black-centered call mm. Mm. that so often gets flipped around to becoming a conversation about the cost to those who are non-Black. Mm-hmm. Which, of which course, is, is like, centering the white folks. Which is who centering the white folks or any non-black <laughs> folks. And it's like, wait, hold on a second. We're not talking about you. We're talking about repair. So what's challenging is what we're talking about as far as centering is really at the heart of it. It's love. Mm. Love lays aside for a moment the 99 to go after the one. Mm-hmm. That's the shepherd centering the, the, the one, right? Love stops the parade to talk to one insignificant socially speaking, hemorrhaging woman. Mm. Jesus stops everything to center one. Fo- th- these, this is divine love mm. that we're called to, to model. And we're, we got to be able to stop the parade and leave the 99 for a moment to center and focus on the one. And I think that's what we're called to do in reparations. And I think that means having those conversations in community, but again and again, reminding people that what we're mainly call to consider is what harm has been done and what now can we do to repair it? Mm. Yes, it's important to talk about, well, what are the implications and what are the costs and what does forgiveness look like and and what do we do with the corporate guilt of white folks in this country and what, what are we saying and what are we not saying? Those questions are important. They are, but my goodness, they are secondary or at least, maybe better put, we'll never be able to answer those questions rightly biblically and wisely until we get the first order questions answered first, which is, has a theft occurred? And are we called in Jesus' name corporately Mm. to repair those thefts? As I've said uh, to folks many times, there are some things that cannot be seen with moral clarity except through tears. And until we collectively weep over the demonic evil that has been perpetrated upon the African-American community, past and present, unless we're weeping with repentance, with lament, and with sorrow, we'll never be able to ask these questions rightly. And unless we're weeping, we'll never actually be centering the right people. Mm. And so I, I, I think it's a good example of like some of the challenges that come up because there's so much resistance. And not just from our white sisters and brothers, no, uh, but there is a lot of resistance that does need to be worked through in questions that are legitimate, that do need to be answered, and concerns that do need to be ministered to. And how do you do all that, though, without centering them, right? Man, so 
so many questions, but maybe this this is I'll be a good first question. How did you come to weep about that issue? Mm. Right. So you're a Korean American, right? Our brother Greg, your co-author, white American. Yeah. I think write with such insight and compassion um, that it seems evident to me that you guys have seen this through tears, right? Yeah. How did that happen for you? And then pastorally speaking, as a, as a matter of gospel ministry, what are some ways to get other people to weep about these things, to see these things through tears? How are you yeah. working that out in the life of your church? I, For me personally, I think, I mean, some of it, of course, is from study, mm-hmm. just learning African-American history, mm-hmm. seeing the facts of what's happened. Of course, that itself is a challenge because it means cutting through a lot of the obfuscation and the erasure of history uh, or the dulling of the edges mm-hmm. of this uh, terrible history that we need to understand. Learning from the Black church as well in terms of seeing how it has handled and and responded to especially these different uh, convulsions of of evil and atrocity and injustice, you know, from uh, the era of chattel slavery through the era of lynching and Jim Crow all the way through the civil rights era to the present day. That you know, just to to see people modeling not only a prophetic identification of injustice and sin when they see it. But I would say even more powerfully, right? So again, your, your question being, what what is it that has taught me? And I think there's a learning. It has taught me to shed holy tears over the evils that have been committed against African-Americans. Honestly, a big part of it is seeing the mercy and the forbearance of the African-American community to experience personally someone that's willing to hang in there with me for all my foolishness and for all my, you know, somebody's walked with me over these years and got me to this place where I'm talking about something crazy like reparations, right? I didn't start out this way, right? <laughs> this isn't, I wasn't born talking about reparations, right? Yeah. Uh, this was a learned thing. This was a mentored thing. This was a, a formed thing. And a lot of that formation came through the personal forgiveness, mercy, patience, forbearance, perseverance of Black brothers and sisters in a denominational space like the PCA, mm-hmm. which I'm a part of, and in the Christian church at large, where I'm like, I can't believe like that you would actually still be hanging in there. Mm-hmm. It's like, if you're not bailing out, what gives me the right to bail out? Mm-hmm. I, I think I'm tired. I cannot imagine how tired you must be, Pastor T. Right? I mean, like, so to to learn from that and to have my heart melted by that, especially through friendships, right? You can't learn tears from afar because mm. it's not personal. It doesn't hit your heart in the same way. Um, we're not talking about abstractions. Uh, we're talking about people you love, um, people I love, right? And so whether if it's in writing the book or if it's in preaching and teaching on reparations, I'm thinking about real people. I'm thinking about real communities, I'm thinking about uh, people that have hung in there with me. That that's what's moved me. Amen. Praise God. Yeah. And and so I assume then that part of how you're then shepherding people is to encourage that same kind of study, that same kind of personal relationship development 
the same kind of recognition of not only another's plight, but the sort of mercy and other things that have been kind of shared in those relationships. Yeah, I think, you know, a call to to do the work of understanding history. And, and we're in a, a little era here where people are putting out works that are just sort of exposing and, and telling the truth right. about history that hasn't been adequately told in many spaces up to this point. And so you actually see that. I'm encouraged by that, that Christians are reading history, Amen. I think, Amen. like never before, Amen. right? Amen. And it's neat. And, and, and Christians are putting out histories mm-hmm. um, that are important to interracial dialogue. Um, so I, I think there's more resources than ever and therefore less excuses than ever for people not to be reading. Mm-hmm. Uh, and learning and seeing, but I but I do think it's also pressing people into relationships because I, I'm convinced as long as these things are just abstractions or policies, and especially if it's policy, you're in dead water. You're not getting anywhere in these right. things. But uh, until you have relationships with people, so that the matter becomes personal, right? Where because I love you, my brother, I have a concern for justice, equity, and repair because I'm seeing how you, whom I love, are treated outside the walls of the church, right? And sometimes even inside the walls of the church, especially historically so, it's a personal burden for me, not just as a matter of policy or society, but because I'm seeing and now feeling how you are being treated and how you are seen and how your children are being treated and how your children are being seen. It becomes a personal matter. And uh, so I think that relational component is not only strategic and key, but I think that's exactly why the church is so incredibly well positioned to make a difference in these spaces, because that's who we are. We're we're a family, at least we're supposed to be, be, right? right? We're a community. It strikes me that in, in your conception of relational, there's both empathy and solidarity, mm-hmm. right? So you're not talking relational in some casual sense. A- acquaintances, you know, I, we, we go to the same church and, right. and that's the extent of, um, but you're talking about a certain kind of entering in yeah. uh, to one another's lived experience, one right. another's histories, right. and, a, and identifying with both in, in empath and in empathy, right. um, but also in solidarity and standing together shoulder to shoulder mm-hmm. in, in encountering those things. No, that's exactly right. I mean, I think that's why the ordinary ministries of the church are still so vital. Mm-hmm. Like, are we pushing people into vulnerable spaces mm-hmm. where you're able to confess your sin and receive forgiveness, where you're supporting people just as you confront the different vicissitudes of life and you're just going through it together, where it's not just about how you talk about matters of race, Mm -hmm. it's how you talk about school, it's how you talk about work, it's how you talk about what you do when you lose your job, what you talk about when someone in your family dies and how you surround that person with support. All of that is part of the process of fostering vulnerable community, which is essential uh, to building that kind of um, empathy and, and, and solidarity. So yeah, proximity, Proximity is a, is, a, is a big key ingredient mm-hmm. to all of this. As Duke and I kicked it about compassion, empathy, and solidarity, the conversation turned to reading and books. I asked Duke a question about how he helps his people avoid bad books. But Duke hit me with a bar, man. He responded by pointing out the importance instead of spiritual formation. 
And I was I was really helped and challenged by the ways he described spiritual formation as the development of a certain set of virtues in community. Right. And since the pastor job and the, and the aim of the church is to make disciples, this struck me, this this spiritual formation, the, the cultivation of virtues in community that struck me as a critical vision for why churches exist and a vision for what churches are meant to do. You mentioned the number of Christians learning history. Mm. Of course, there's also the spawning of a cottage industry opposing said history right? and producing counter narratives and things of that sort. I would say even libeling and slandering mm. good history and good historians. Mm. How are you helping your people sort of get the noise out and to sort of identify that kind of reactionary, oppositional work that's also happening inside and outside the church? Yeah, you know, I don't think I address it in our church directly. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm not putting out a book list and saying, saying, you know, this is what you need to read and this is what's good and this is what's not good and that kind of thing. Um, I mean, sometimes I wish our people read a little bit more, yeah. right? Yeah. <laughs> Always yeah. as a matter of formation. <laughs> um, but I think the way that I try to shepherd people through those kinds of things is by, maybe one way to put it is by cultivating the virtues that enables them to confront histories that maybe they may not naturally want to hear. In other words, cultivating a posture of repentance and an understanding of repentance as the doorway through which we receive gospel life, right? Mm -hmm. So it's okay to go to the dark places. It's okay to see the ugly things, not only in your own heart, but also in your nation's story, Mm -hmm. right? It's not only okay because you're armed with the gospel, you're tethered to the cross so you can rappel down into the dark pit. Mm -hmm. It's not only okay, it's actually necessary. Uh, So let's go there. Let's go do that together. And, um, you know, so whether if it's the virtue, if we can call it that, and the practice of repentance and faith, or if it's in cultivating, forming in people, a positive embrace of vulnerability in community, mm-hmm. or if it's in fostering in people a love of the truth, no matter the cost. So I think maybe one or two steps upstream from the question of bibliography, trying to ready people in their hearts, not to, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid of reading hard things. Don't be afraid of, of encountering complexities not only in the truth of history, but also in the Word of God. Let's let's wrestle with this. And so I, I feel like even in the way that I deal with hard theological matters, whether if it's theodicy or if it's in just the hard things uh, that we find in Scripture. A couple of weeks ago, I preached in Exodus, and you got all this stuff about sexuality. You got stuff referring to Hebrew slaves. You got, you know— and I felt a moral pastoral obligation to preach on it, mm-hmm. to deal with it head on, even though I could have maybe edited a few things and slipped in some ellipses if I wanted to, <laughs> right? You know, we have, you know, we don't got time for that paragraph over there, right? But to do that so that people know you have to embrace the complexities. And that's part of our Christian discipleship, because if we oversimplify things to people, they're actually going to be ill-equipped. Mm when they're confronted with hard things that don't always seem to fit. 
Mm. You know, how is it possible that this history could be true and this other piece of history true? And how do I synthesize all these things? I want our people to be like, well, what did you expect? Mm. It was always going to be hard. Mm -hmm. Didn't you know? We live this all the time. We study in this way. There's a challenge to learning the truth, and we're going to do it together, and we're going to be all right. So trying to cultivate that expectation as well as uh, that sort of learned process of how we arrive at things. If it's all easy, if it's just about pastor, give me the right books to read and tell me which ones to avoid. If it's all easy, it's like, well, you know, pastor, of course, American history is only neat and tidy and good and true because, you know, this is the land of the free and home of the brave, isn't it? It's like, well, <laughs> no, I want to teach people to expect not to be cynical, but to be curious and then unsurprised when they actually see the manifestations of our doctrine of total depravity. Mm. Amen. Amen. <laughs> it's like, look, this is what we've been talking about. Amen. It's messy. It's complex. Amen. What'd you expect? That's so good. So you, you're you're talking about an approach to ministry that makes a, a significant difference. It draws a significant distinction between ministry merely as information transfer. Mm -hmm. Here are the books to read, here are the things to believe, et cetera, which only lasts until they start listening to somebody other than you. Yeah, right. Right. That's right. <laughs> right. As right. soon as they start listening to somebody else with, who has other information they're transferring, everybody's in trouble now. That's right. right. You, you're drawing a distinction between that and ministry as spiritual formation. Yeah. Right. As the inculcating of virtue. Right. And those virtues then really being things that give ballast to people. So they're not tossed by every wind of doctrine, not, not tossed to and fro. And they are discerning, yeah. you know, uh, and and the powers of discernment are strengthened with practice, right? That's you know, right. Think of Hebrews here, you know, as, as they are actually applying those things, um, they become more intelligent, more discerning, more careful consumers of whatever information they're running into. That's right. So you're, you're talking about forming a certain kind of person That's more right. than you're talking about simply passing along information. The, the best analogy to this is parenting, Right? I mean, That's you right. only got a few years, really. It's short years, right? You they know better than I know, too. right? It's real fast. Yeah. And then after that, they're out of the home, and now they need to exercise whatever they've got in the tank. And That's too right. many of our kids are empty, That's right? right. And right. so what churches can tend to do is feel like our obligation is to put our people on the straight and narrow. And so you give them all the right answers. Mm -hmm. And the only way to get them staying on the straight and narrow with all the right answers is through control. And so we say, well, don't read this and don't read that and whatever. When really in real life, what we need to learn to exercise is discernment That's right. and wisdom That's right. and sound judgment. And to do that hard work for ourselves, not just top down, tell me what to believe and tell me what to think, mm -hmm. but actually to wrestle with that by the grace of the Holy Spirit. And that's the irony is that too often churches will form people that know the right answers and yet are fools, right? <laughs> so so, so they can pass the test, That's right. but they don't know how to exercise wisdom and discernment for themselves and to not just, I got the right answer, but how did I work through the question? Mm -hmm. And that, that, that is where people are falling on the ground lost and existentially threatened by these hard questions that are coming up in some ways in an unprecedented fashion right now, right? Because everything's getting dismantled. Everything's being thrown into question. Right. And it's like, hold on a second. You telling me that the answer that I've been hanging on to, clinging for dear life, because my pastor and all his people have been telling me this is the answer, that's broken into a thousand pieces now. That might not be right. 
my whole Christian identity is falling apart. But listen, if you were hanging on to not only the answer, but you had a robust spiritual process by which you arrived at the answer, well, you can dislodge the answer over here and still have 90% of what you had because you know how you got there. You knew how you were sorting through the issues and how you were thinking through things biblically. We haven't discipled people into doing that. And now we're wondering why they're running away, (laughs) why the church feels so fragile suddenly. I know it's not. We know it's not. Man, ain't no one messing with the Church of Jesus, Amen. right? Amen. Stand forever, right? But uh, the institutional expressions of that spiritual reality of the mm-hmm. church does feel very fragile right now, at least in this country, and at least in certain segments of the church, yeah. that is, right? Yep. So that is one reason why I think we got to raise people up like we raise our kids. And maybe that starts with learning how to raise our kids better, too. <laughs> listen, listen, listen. Right? Hey, man, that, that parenting analogy is spot on. Because mm. I think what we're beginning to say about the church is what we have for a long time said about uh, Christian kids who go off to college. Right. Right? That exactly. fear about they go to college, they're going to depart from the faith. Right? Right. Um, well, that those chickens have come home to roost. That's right. Right? Because we have been in this sort of long period of really a kind of fundamentalist um, this is what you must believe. Don't don't worry about the reasons. Right. Right. Don't, don't worry about how you got there. Pastor said. Right. And I say to my folks all the time, pastor said at our church ain't gonna get you nothing. Yeah. <laughs> right. Did yeah. the Bible say? Yeah. You know, can we build our positions from the Bible up rather than from our system or our leaders down? Right. That's just vital. That's uh, right. And and learning to think in those ways is just crucial. No, that's right. You know, one of the best pieces of parenting advice that I heard actually indirectly, but have talked with my wife about a lot is this idea of like, don't you want your kids to be making all their mistakes while they're still under your roof Mm. rather than when Mm. they're out of your reach and on their own Mm. and making all the mistakes with just their friends and not telling you about it, right? So this is, we parent our kids in a way that makes it safe for them to be the sinners that they are, but also where they're growing in wisdom and growing in the gospel. And in the same way, to use that analogy, I think what we want to do in the life of the church is to give people space to confront and wrestle with the sins and failures of the church's past and the world's past, right? And so we're confronting the hard edges now together, Mm -hmm. right? So that when you're on your own, you can exercise wisdom and discernment. Um, Because I do believe that, for example, when we actually see the truth about the history of the church's failures in the past, in regards to race, as we've been talking about, in regards to the church's support of slavery, uh, in regards to its neglect of addressing the scourge of lynching in the way that it had passively and sometimes actively supported Jim Crow during those decades. The more we actually confront, see, and learn about those failures, I believe our people will come out loving the church more. Mm -hmm. I know people are afraid of the very opposite effect taking place. I believe they will love the church more because they will be more convinced that she actually is the bride of Christ Mm. that has no possibility of having any redeemed life in her apart from the grace of Jesus. Mm. We will love the one that is beloved instead of thinking she's a fine, natural human institution that's done just well, just fine, and in fact has never made a mistake, right? We want to believe the church is without sin. I think in seeing the sins of the church, we actually embrace her more tightly and love the church for what she really is by God's grace. Duke and I began this conversation talking about moral clarity and tears, how our tears help us see. And we ended with 
a conversation about love for the church. Now, the core holding together moral clarity and love for the church was truth-telling. And that makes sense in light of Ephesians 4. So when we speak the truth in love, the body builds itself up in love. And, and here's the deal, man. Far too often, church leaders and planters appear to be looking for church growth and church unity strategies other than truth-telling. But what if serving vulnerable and neglected black and brown neighborhoods really can be boiled down to that one simple but sometimes difficult commitment to tell the truth? What if all the morality, maturity, virtue, love, and change we want to see sprouts in that one garden of truth-telling? Well, everything is lost if we don't tell the truth, but everything is gained if we learn to love the truth. May the Lord give us grace to see through tears and love the church enough to tell the truth.